You are not allowed to stop your machine without my permission, Miss Kofsky. You will lose one hour of pay this week. Please, Mr. Simon. I was only wiping off my forehead so I could see the work better. Don't take any money from my pay. If my family can't pay the rent, the landlord will throw us onto the street. And no talking. I will be kind to you, Miss Kofsky, and only take out a nickel for talking instead of working. Not more from my pay. Oh, please, Mr. Simon. I am working hard. Still talking? That's another nickel. Soon you will learn to do what Simon says. <laughs> and scene. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls. This is the podcast where we're reliving and some might say reenacting the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm Simon. Whoa, Simon says. That was, Allison, that was like, that was my first pass back as a, as a thespian, different kind of bianism than I'm used to since we did our larger Kirsten performance, I think. That was a scene from the chapter entitled Movie Acting and Changes for Rebecca. For that, I was pulling from some different life experiences. So wow. I am descended from a string of men named Simon. So I was kind of pulling wow. from that a little bit. Okay. I was pulling from, you know, experiences playing Simon Says. Okay. I was kind of getting some Samantha flashbacks. Sure. That's that's where I pulled that from. I was pulling from the fact that my character was sweating. And, you know, in life right now, I'm actually physically sweating because it's hot in here. So I kind of went method. Like, I turned off my my AC, like I allowed myself to get hot. And so I could really just like embody this role. This imagine scene that Rebecca and Anna decide to play out as part of like prep for a future movie, it gets too real for Rebecca very quickly. And she's upset when her cousin is kind of playing Simon too well. And she has to say, I'm not Anna, I'm Mr. Simon, which I think kind of gets to conversations about the fact that like men are allowed to method act, but women are not. And I, I'm here for Anna. I want her to be able to method act in as much of a Daniel Day-Lewis way as she wants to. That's a terrifying thought, but I, I mean... I would method act you, if called. Who says you're not method acting? Who says I'm not method acting at this stage? When I'm mill girl, I, I go method. Like, I, you know, That's throw terrifying. some bobbins around ahead of time. I kind of, you know, pull my hair back extra tight, you know... That's that's inspirational to me. Aspirational. I can't, as you know, like doing that scene was physically difficult for me. I'm not a performer in that way. Like Rebecca wouldn't respect me as a fellow actor. I feel like I don't have the chops and, you know, like maybe you're Meryl Streep and I'm just like Meryl Streep's daughters. Like that's our skill level. <laughs> I don't know. I got to think about that. But, you know, Allison, we gather here to just dis to discuss what you called maybe your new favorite American Girl book. I have to say my sleeper surprise of all the series has still been Caroline. Mm -hmm. Those books have been the most surprising to me that I still think about, that I still really adore. Loved Samantha more than I ever thought. This is going to rank number two after Meet Molly for favorite American girl book. Whoa, that's high yes. praise. And I want to say that Addie Learns a Lesson is probably number three. Okay, I agree with that. That's a great book. Yeah, this book really caught me by surprise in a good way in that it's chaotic. There's a lot that happens. It's There's a lot of adventure, a lot of events taking place. But it's also a very Allison book. Like the topics this book is tackling <laughs> yeah. is like sort of designed in a lab for you. So I feel like this is a big day for you. And, you know, I'm along for the ride. And I also just there's a lot of moments that made me laugh in this book. It was, you know, very moving at the end in some ways. And... Yeah, I can't wait to get into it. Like Rebecca, I recently went to the movies for the first time. For me, it was in two years. For her, it was, you know, not being able to be old enough to go to the movies before. Sure. But I know that we're kind of, we're taking in some stuff like F-Boy Island. We're taking in a few different Lots products. Happening. Wait, what did you see at the movies? I saw Nope, which is the oh. new Jordan Peele film. I don't know that we've ever discussed this on the show, but you and I saw Get Out <laughs> in a very packed theater yes. that had a lot of very enthusiastic people when certain scenes happened. And 
that was a very, very fun experience. Nope was fantastic. Like, really very interesting take on a modern Western. Hmm. I've now been seeing clips of, you know, the female lead, Kiki Palmer, talking about how she doesn't know who Dick Cheney is, which I think is iconic. I guess. Rebecca Rubin also probably would choose to ignore Dick Cheney's very existence, but Fair. you have started listening to a podcast that kind of takes us back to the world that created Ooh. Rebecca Rubin. I have, yes, Allison, I have taken in, <laughs> I would call my past week of my life like a tale of two adaptations, one of which was one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life, more to come on that, one of which is like kind of a, a navigation of a very similar theme. So hear me out on this. The worst adaptation, the thing I'll talk about in second was Dakota Johnson's Persuasion, which was truly, I'm offended. Like I'm going to see, I'm at a point now where I'm like, how dare you release this during Leo season or adjacent to Leo <laughs> season? It was, it's my favorite book of all time. So I know I take it probably too seriously. And I really like the 1995 BBC adaptation. I hated this adaptation with every fire of my being like, I was screaming, I was yelling at the screen. The choices are wild. They're basically like, what if we did Jane Austen but Fleabag? Like, she speaks directly to camera mm. throughout. And she's also, they've given the main character kind of like a quirkiness or sort of like a, a smirk that is not of the book. And a major theme of the book is renegotiating or reflecting on choices in your life as an older person, which for Jane Austen is kind of like the Bachelor producer she considers 26 old. But... Basically, this person was in love with someone. Her parents were like, you can't marry him. He has no money. And then basically seven years pass and she's still pining for this man, but not in a pathetic or obnoxious way. And she's not sarcastic. This movie has her yelling at him out a window. She's mm -hmm. like comically drinking bottles of wine. And it's like, look, fine. I'm sure that's a relatable content, but it's kind of the central. One of the central questions of the book is like, who do I want to be and who do my parents want me to be? And like, how do I navigate that as an adult? She, it's just, it's so misses so many key things. They rewrite iconic scenes for no reason. Like I was very upset. A different adaptation that's also about, <laughs> I don't know if they consider it a persuasion adaptation. I need to think about this, but where people are navigating or, or kind of like revisiting their childhood is, I think it's called Behind the Beach, but it's the Laguna Beach recap <laughs> podcast. It just launched, hosted by Steven and... Um, Kristen Cavallari. And she clearly has just been brought on. He's the producer. I, it, Steven, if you're listening, I don't mean this and skip ahead 30 seconds. He's the most boring human being I've possibly <gasps> ever heard. Mary, you can't say that. I'm just saying it. Like, this is a privilege. You can be boring. <laughs> being boring is a privilege. We need to talk about that. He was on One Tree Hill later years as an actor. I'm putting that in scare quotes. I don't think that's his skill set. And I'm happy for him because he's a producer now, mostly, and he's producing this podcast. Like, good for him. I think he found his calling. But he's coming from a place of, like, I want to genuinely revisit this time in our lives because I don't remember a lot of it. I haven't rewatched the show. And I want to kind of own some of my mistakes. Kristen's the most chaotic person I've heard in a long time, where she's, like, coming out of a 10-year marriage. She clear she says to on the show, I had a reunion dinner with you. I wasn't allowed to see you because, and then implies her husband forbade it. And then was like, yeah, we had a crazy reunion dinner. We, you know, we had shots and we were dancing on a table. And then she was like, and then I ended up kissing you at the end of the night. And I was sitting <gasps> in your lap and you're like, what? And he's, it's <laughs> one of my favorite things on a podcast is like when something unexpected happens or people like come to a shared realization that they don't anticipate. He is so uncomfortable that she says this. And clearly he's like, that didn't happen. But there's a picture of them on her Instagram that she posted. And she was like, I broke the internet with this photo. Like people weren't prepared to see us together again. And he's like, I know it's so crazy. And like, it is fascinating if you're interested in reality TV, because they talk a lot about how manufactured it was as an early air quotes reality show that was heavily scripted and produced. And that's really interesting. Genuinely. He has no personality and like, I'm sorry for that, but that just has to be said. And we're moving along with that she is deeply chaotic and is like, okay, I'm trying to navigate my life after this life change, but also like, I miss that time in my life being on the show. And then Elsie is kind of haunting the entire production. Cause you're like, when it, where is she? And I went on her Instagram and it's like basically curated ads for stuff sold at Kohl's. No shade. I know I'm more pro Love Kohl's that. than you are. That's okay. <laughs> but I'm like, where is she going to fit into this? And Kristen to her credit is like, 
that show pitted me against Lauren when it should have pitted both of us against you. And she says it directly to him. <gasps> and you're like, well, so, I mean, for me to take this in with persuasion in the same week, like Allison, I'm just like, I'm on a high, but I'm also asking myself a lot of questions. It's like, it's a lot. Do not recommend the persuasion adaptation. Go watch the 1995 one, but please listen to this podcast and somebody just tell me what's going on. And then somebody else was like, well, she's anti-vax. And I'm like, I can't have that. Like that can't be real. But maybe she is. I don't know. I haven't looked into her enough. Anyway, that's where I'm at. But what are you taking in? So I think to quote Dakota Johnson via Jane Austen, he's a 10 and you don't trust a 10. But (laughs) I digress. I don't. I have been watching something called Snowflake Mountain, which is a reality program in the vein of the simple life, but very kind of like self-aware. Okay. It takes privileged young people and puts them in like outdoor conflict scenarios, basically. It's it's hmm. pretty scripted, but I also enjoy it. And one of the first episodes features a man who tries to hoard chocolate that they come across to like you know, please and delight a woman whose birthday is coming up as part Great. of their adventure. Great. And he presents her with the, you know, contraband material. And she's like, oh, so you stole. Like, you weren't good about the rations. So it's kind of a fascinating comment. Like, I don't watch shows like Survivor anymore. I just kind of lost track of them. But sure. if you're looking for something that's both, like, entirely unoriginal and just sort of a, a time filler, it's very, very good for that. So I've I've been engaging that. Um you know, F Boy Island is always there, but we live on F Boy Island. You know, it's it's called the United it's States. Everywhere. So it's all the time. Wow. I want to believe that at the end of this series, when Max, aka formerly Moshe, goes out to California and becomes a big star, that he remembers Rebecca's Rebecca's blurred lines between reality and film and he creates reality TV his or his son or his grandson does that's that's what I want to believe like I want to believe that there's a line from Max to keeping up with the Kardashians I don't know if there is but I think Max would tell Chloe to love herself and I don't I just I think it could all come together like Max would have a house in Calabasas he would have a house in Calabasas. He would love to live next door to his children, not unlike Chris. You know, he <laughs> loves that family time. I, I'm worried about him with this bi-coastal move. But I do think that we're meant to think he's Douglas Fairbanks and Lily is Mary Pickford and they're going to get married and then potentially divorce dramatically when he's unfaithful. But, you know, who's, who can say? I, I'm hoping for a better rewrite there. But yeah, I mean, we, we certainly would love for someone to give Chloe some <laughs> confidence or better decision-making because he gads. There will be a timeline. There will be a day and there will be a timeline and all will be revealed and we will know a truth about what is occurring with her surrogacy situation. I did call this a very long time ago. I called this a very long time ago. So I think... You you're know, like channeling Miss Cleo right now where you're like vague <laughs> prophecy. Oh my God. You know, words matter, but also, you know, surrogacy, you know, there are different kinds of boundaries that people have with that. I think the truth will come out eventually. Okay. I'm I'm very excited to talk about this book. Like, I am living for this book. It's, I didn't think we could get any better than Coney Island. And then we got to just be part keeps of going. a strike and a labor picnic and a movie. And, and a, a movie. Not as good as a Jordan Peele movie, but... You know, I mean, what good. can be, I guess. Yeah. I just remember screaming. I was genuinely afraid during that movie. I don't do all the scary movies, but. I love scary movies, as you know. Yes. And I have to say, Nope was a genuinely extremely good film. And I think something, if you are sort of interested in the history of film, not going to give anything away. There is a core piece of the story that has to do with the history of cinema, right? Mm. And with Black actors and Black people being involved in the Hollywood industry. And something that I think Rebecca would actually really support Jordan Peele goes out of his way to have a sort of campus around his films where people who have historically not been hired on sets get hired on sets and mentored very deliberately. Mm. And I do think that's actually kind of, obviously that's amazingly cool in its own right, but 
you see something that's happened over the course of these books from the opening vignette of the Rebecca series is her play acting and living kind of in a childhood bubble. And by the end, she's realized a childhood dream of being in a film. Very cool arc, Mm. right? Very cool for essentially like a 12 month, you know, snapshot of her life. And it's good to know that there are people in Hollywood that take that seriously is there a line from Peel back to Max? I don't know. I don't know. That's not for me to say. But maybe. But maybe. Yes. I think, you know, we got to get into <laughs> what Harry Styles and apparently Jordan Peel call cinema. So yes. if you've not heard that song, Allison, I, I suggest you do. It's it's a lot. Harry Styles is a wonderful young man. I sound like a grandma, but, you know, I'm proud of him. I think he's I love done a his good album. Job. I think it's very good. His and Lizzo's album, if you need to get in a better mood, definitely listen to those. They're very fun. They're positive. I only listen to singles, as you know. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Well, you know, <laughs> you know, someday it'll reach you. It'll be released as a single. But, <laughs> my God. You got, you got the cinema. So there are two different summaries of this book, and one has a haunting line about a person named Tasha, and and that is not accurate. The protagonist is not Tasha, so don't read that summary. But on the back of the book, we have this actually helpful summary. Rebecca likes the idea of making a movie, but when her gentle cousin Anna plays a cruel factory boss, that was me 10 minutes ago, (laughs) the fun turns sour. Then Rebecca learns the truth about factories and begins to see why Anna acted so mean. On a visit to the factory where Anna's brother and father work, Rebecca is horrified. Is this the life that's in store for Anna? There's got to be a way to make things better at the factory. And Rebecca is determined to do her part, even if it means marching straight into danger. Damn. I want to just say from the jump that I I don't think this is the appropriate title for this book. I have a different title for this book. Oh, go for it. It's longer, but I think it speaks to the energy of this book. And so I would have called this book How to Be Part of a Collective Movement When You Give Main Character Energy. I think that works. I think that works. I think this is not really a changes book in the same way that other changes books have given us kind of closure or like direction with a character arc. Like I remember certain changes books such as Kirsten's were like extremely chaotic and kind of just left us with a lot of a lot of different questions. I feel like this book hit the stride or the heart of where this author wanted Rebecca to be all along. Mm. I think that's true. Like it's interesting because this is a changes book, but it's really like everyone around her who experiences change. Like, even when, spoiler alert, she comes out as an actor at the end of this book in a scene that we will get to. When she arrives at that moment of like, oh, you're realizing or like you're stepping into this change, like it's not really a change. Like book one, she kind of knew she wanted to be an actress. And I feel like there hasn't been a ton of tension in that plot line where like, yeah, the dad has said a couple of times, I want you to be a teacher. But it's not like they've really been at odds about this in part because she's 10, but you know, I didn't really feel like that was the change. Like the change is sort of like what happens with Anna's family, like the workers conditions, like all of these things around her, like Max getting engaged and moving. She kind of is sort of reliably like not the same, but I think this isn't a, a point of arrival for her. No. And what I was expecting out of this book was there to be chapters after chapter about Rebecca trying to make a play or make a movie And that plot line is actually dropped pretty quickly in this book because of basically one scene of acting in quotes with her cousin that feels really revelatory to her. Something that I absolutely love about this book is Rebecca learns that she really likes public speaking and Rebecca really learns that like she cares deeply about how other people are experiencing the world It starts with a scene of Rebecca like forgetting the world in the movie theater and it ends with her thinking about how she might change the world. Mm. And I love that this book does not land on and one is valid and the other is not, right? It doesn't land on saying and acting or performing is an invalid way of changing the world. Where it lands is people having, in a very genuine, like well thought out way, like people having different ways to do important work. 
And once again, I am just in love with Max as a character validating her and providing an outside, inside perspective within the family. And I kind of, I kind of like the difference, like spoiler, as we've said, he and Lily announced that they are one engaged and two moving to California. You know, Gard and Cornelia stay close to really kind of like form a cocoon and a safety net around Samantha. Max does this hard thing, which is saying he's leaving the family and setting this other kind of example. And I love that as an ending for this book, because you know that there's going to be tension there down the line, but you're somehow actually really happy for where this relationship or set of relationships might go. Like that was a cool ending to this series. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool end. And actually not to kind of start at the end, but I sort of, I think there's an exchange between Max and Rebecca at the end that really does a beautiful distillation of like this entire arc in this entire series where you get, as you're saying that Max is the person who really sees her and all of her dualities. And he's, he's had a different experience, but he can sort of speak to these dual desires, like to be a valued member of the family and not disappoint people in the family, but also to be true to yourself. And as far as you can, like pursue whatever path that you're interested in. It begins on 66, where he says, there's a big difference between acting on set and taking action. You are certainly a lady of action. And she's kind of grappling with like wanting to be an actress, but also really valuing the work that happens when you you know, engage in public speaking and take part in strikes. And so he's kind of helping her navigate that these are both worthy goals. You don't have to pick one. And she says, you once said movies let people forget their troubles on 69. But speeches can help people solve their troubles, can't they? And um, then says people like to get away from their worries for a while. And movies are wonderful for that. But there are times when we need to face problems head on in order to fix them. That's what speeches can do. And so he kind of gives her permission to kind of love more than one thing or to, you know, to kind of be a both and about some of this stuff. Because I think she's like, well, is the really valuable work like being in the street protesting, giving speeches? But I also love this thing that feels more ephemeral that allows you to escape the world and act and on screen. And I could think he does help her kind of value both things. And that's really beautiful. Hey everyone, today I'm pretty excited to talk to you about Vegamore. From curling and straightening, bleach, everything you can imagine, even some unwanted haircuts in retrospect, there is so much that can damage your hair. But the only thing that should be holding your hair back is a scrunchie or other accessory of your choosing. This is where Vegamore comes in. Vegamore has something for everyone looking to improve their hair health. The Grow Revitalizing Shampoo and Conditioner Kit is an awesome set that works to create visibly thicker hair and improve hair right from the root. You just massage the shampoo into your scalp and follow up with a conditioner. I love this product. It is in a happy place in my shower. I love the way that it smells and it really has worked to undo damage from the past few years. With Vegamore, I also love that there is no risk in trying. You have a 90-day money-back guarantee, and 91% of customers say that they saw visibly thicker hair using Vegamore in just three months. So if you want to try Vegamore and get in on this deal, you want to go to vegamore.com slash americangirlspod and use our code, americangirlspod. That will get you 20% off your first order. Now, remember, that's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash American Girls Pod. Head on over and use that code to save 20%. Thank you. Also really well situated in a context of a Labor Day picnic of working people, right? Yeah. And this idea that a lot of working people literally then and now don't get Labor Day off because they have to work. And so, you know, what what is the celebration really about? And there is an illustrated vignette on page 67 with the Statue of Liberty, like way blurred in the background. And the family is dancing and there are other people who are kind of joining in. And something that's come through in every single Rebecca book is at least a scene where people are performing in a way. They're dancing, they're singing, they're celebrating, they're doing something as a group. And I think what this captures really well is that a young woman who's really like aware and plugged in in the Lower East Side in Rebecca's time, like 
at a protest or at a strike or at a labor picnic, like the way that you move your body, the way that you sing and connect with people, that's not seen as fluffy stuff. That's seen as integral to your labor praxis and that's seen as as part of it. So I like the way that all of that ended and that you have just this great visual of them kind of all around. And that's when Max asked the question, like, how did you like being on stage again, right? Mm. Like, how did you like being part of all of this, but also being someone who kind of sticks out, which is also that further validation of you're not just a child seeking attention. You're a person Mm. with something to say. I will note that like I was reading reviews that that totally was grating to some people, right? That she kind of just like steps up and, and does that. The reality, though, is that young girls her age or a bit older were labor leaders. Mm. You know, like it feels phony and it might feel a little bit like, okay, this is an American girlism, but it's not. Mm. You know, can you say Um, more about that? Like what how old are girls taking part in this? Like when is that happening? What did it look like? That kind of thing. So there's a thinly veiled character who's further explained in the back. Clara Adler is Clara Lemlick, right? And so Clara Lemlick is this huge labor leader who would have been right between Samantha's era and Rebecca's era. So she's really prominent around 1909. So she's really like just between these. There were significant labor strikes in 1915 when this book is set, but there are bigger ones in the years preceding it, um, preceding the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire and then in the wake of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire There is a really good children's book that's been approved by a lot of different different activist groups called Brave Girl, and it tells the story of how Clara Lemlick is sort of like almost like so young that she like she does absolutely understand like she's very courageous, but she's so young. She has that courage that you have at a certain age to just like do the absolute right thing, and she ends Mm. up leading a pretty significant strike in New York City. So this idea that a young girl and particularly a young Jewish girl would lead and step out from a crowd is accurate for the period. Like you're talking like very young teenagers. You also have people like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who's still on the younger side, right? Like you have younger women who step out and are heard because they're chosen among their peers or they step out among their peers and they're working. You know, part Mm. of part of the sort of privilege and like fascination in this book is like how they write Rebecca experiencing the factory when she doesn't work there. And it's so different from Samantha. It is. And that's one of the things that I really noted and actually made me think about one of our shared favorite books, The Foul and the Fragrant, which is like how Mm -hmm. the history of smell can actually really acts as a really important entry point two moments in the past. And we get, I think this author does like probably the best job of anyone we've read so far in sort of setting a scene in terms of your senses, like bringing you in. But she also does a really smart thing of like juxtaposing the sensory experiences of being a child who's not working in a factory or person who's not working in a factory, plus like the suffocating sensory experience of being in the factory. So the first ones I noted, and you probably have some too, like on chat on page five, it first shows up when we're, we go with Rebecca and Anna, they've gone to the movies. They've actually seen the movie that Rebecca appears in. And I was kind of sad about the fact that like she does, she's afraid to tell her parents, but it means by the time that she does, the movies probably stop playing. And I'm like, What if they never get to see her? And I'm like, what if this is one of those silent films that gets like lost in an archive fire? I was just kind of like, uh, Rebecca, but like sad for her. But anyway, they go to Anna's tenement building and it says, quote, the smells of cooked cabbage and stale garbage filled the dark hallway and the girls covered their noses and mouths with their hands, trying not to breathe. And it's like, that is such a striking image as an entry point to be like everything that happens next comes through like that filtered smell and like sensory experience and imagining that being your living experience. And then it's juxtaposed when they are out in the street by the them walking through the fire hydrant in a really hot day. So it's sort of like this liberating, relieving feeling of being on a hot day, which we can relate to and running through a sprinkler, which I'm prepared to do like right now. Um, (laughs) 
you know, so I liked that she kind of offers these juxtapositions and then they get to the factory. So like they've done their play and their mom, Anna's mom has come home and she's like, okay, somebody needs to bring dad. And I think Joseph is the brother working there dinner at the coat factory and Anna's going to bring it and Rebecca asked to go along. It's clear she's never been. So we're getting her like first time sensory experience. Do you have that page? I got to find it. I'll just say too, when they start to do the play acting, uh, Rebecca has this kind of internal thought that she can imagine how hot it is because even the apartment that Anna and Joseph and others live in feels like a sweatshop. They then follow that up with what it's actually like in the factory. And we learn on page 11, an Italian girl talked about the Uptown Coat Company where Papa and Joseph work. She said it was so hot, one of the stitchers fainted right on the floor. And I like that Rebecca kind of has this sense of like, I know because I've been hot. Mm -hmm. And then we have this kind of follow-up of, but this may actually be a different level than you've ever even experienced. Um, and it's starting page 13. We basically follow them in a limited way into the factory where they're asked to bring in the meal. And we learn that they're actually not allowed to see completely inside, which is accurate and kind of was interesting. It again evokes that triangle shirtwaist of how many doors are locked, right? People being yeah. locked inside different places. I mean, it's just like, it's so overpowering. On 21, Rebecca stepped back, covering her nose and mouth. The sour odors of sweat and machine oil blended into one foul smell. She would never have believed that the smell and the heat could be worse than in the tenement. It's like, yikes. Like, and we've, and because of the way the story's built, like we've gone with her through these moments. So we know what she means by, I couldn't believe anything could smell worse than the tenement. So, yeah, I mean, I think like juxtapos juxtaposing these sensory experiences is just a really smart way of, of building this story. And another really smart juxtaposition is like she it's so hot that she's like, we could Anna's like, we could sleep on the fire escape tonight. And I was like, OK, this was perhaps one of the most terrifying parts of the book for me personally, as a person who's afraid of heights. I was like, absolutely no. I don't know. I don't think I could handle it. But also like you have this beautiful image of like all these kids in the neighborhood are doing this. They're all sleeping and they're like throwing a ball at one another. They're chatting and it's like they're outside. It's in nature. They're liberated. And it's such a counter to like the suffocating conditions indoors just normally. I don't know. And it made me think about like triangle shirtwaist, like not being able to get outdoors and like just this juxtaposition of like outside inside. I just thought it was really smart. It also, you know, I mean, it's something that I experience up close where people will say, so hot, so I work in a mill and I also like work in a mill, right? I give tours of a mill and my office is in a mm. mill and there will be days when it's easily 90 degrees inside and people will say, but what was it really like? And I'll say, you know, the more I do this, I don't really know, right? I wear clothing that's designed for a certain set of things or I'm wearing my personal attire, I'm not asked to stand here 12, 13 hours a day, right? I have a very different lived experience than what this is. Um, I can tell you that within about 20 minutes of being inside an on-air-conditioned mill, most people are all set, right? Mm -hmm. And there is something to the fact that they don't even allow Rebecca and her cousin in past a certain point. And they raise the point like, well, if it's not safe enough for us to even see inside, how are people working here and I like, and I, I do think we really came around to Samantha as a character, but I like the way that Rebecca is constantly trying to put things in a frame of her own understanding. Cause that's when you do mm. as a child and as a person where it's like, well, I've been around smelly stuff, but this is a different kind of smelly. I've been hot and I've had my clothes sticking to me, but wow, these people really look like this is something different. And we have these kind of fun moments where they're like hoping they get a thunderstorm. Rebecca is sort of daydreaming about having more windows and the tenements just being better spaced out. As a kind of spoiler for where this book goes, the set director or the set maker who she really hit it off with while making the film, you kind of knew he was going to come back, that carpenter. We learned that he's going to be building houses in Brooklyn that within 100 years, uh, none of us can afford, but that's a whole like separate other conversation maybe. Oof. But he's building these houses way out in Brooklyn 
And I love the way that that comes back where Rebecca's thinking, you know, if only there was a place kind of near here where people like us could own a house and you're like, Rebecca, it's going to happen. <laughs> it's it coming. happens. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. And I kind of guess like in a meta way, I'm, or just like in terms of the positioning of this, Rebecca has to be the star of this book because it's the Rebecca series. And yet I can't help but wonder like, would it have been more radical in terms of American Girl and how they structure things if she had actually allowed Anna to be the hero of the strike? Because I mean, she is an immigrant herself. Like in some mm. ways she has more in common with people like Claire Lemlick and others like you know, Rebecca's kind of an aspiring middle-class girl who's coming down, like, vacationing in a place where Anna lives. And she's, like, experiencing the tenement smell for the first time with us, whereas it's Anna's everyday reality. And her father's working in a sweatshop and so on. Like, I wonder what you make of the fact that Anna is, like, very absent once we move into the labor protest scenes. Like, she's there with her brother looking for her parents at the protest. Um, but it's Rebecca who is the star, of this whole movement. Like, did we need, like, does she need to be the focus? Is that odd? Like, what do you make of that? It is almost an exact replication of the Nellie Samantha dynamic mm -hmm. in one way, which is once Samantha gets new information and she's been asked to write the essay about American progress, she stops saying that the factory is the epitome of American progress, right? She gets new information. She changes her mind. I think there's that tension there, right? Like with both Samantha and Nellie and Anna and Rebecca, is the person who's doing the speaking and is the person who is like kind of centering themselves, right, to some small extent, um, the best person to be doing it in this circumstance? And Anna has a certain kind of experience. Nellie has a certain kind of experience. But we're also, I think, meant to identify with the fact that Rebecca, as you say, is just outside of it. And the reality is, like, we're way far outside of it, right? Mm. We live in 2022, right? Like, I don't, I don't work in a factory in any kind of meaningful way. I think because we're meant to like really have been on this ride with Rebecca, we kind of take for granted that she should be the one. I also think like if we take a lot of other elements out for a second, and this applies to Rebecca more than Samantha, some people are not good speakers, right? Mm -hmm. Like Anna really pulled it out with the song and Anna had the great flag wave and like she is a good performer. I do believe that she could do it. Some people have a natural affinity for like knowing how to strike and what to say. And you look at someone I mentioned like Clara Lemlich, like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, like Mother Jones. Something I talk about a lot at my job is that they were just electrifying speakers. They could get really loud. People mm. really like to listen to them. And I do think there's something to be said for the fact that Rebecca thinks even though she's been in a silent movie, she thinks about body comportment already as an actor. Mm. We've had a scene in every single book where she figures out how to command attention. I don't know that she's like the voice of the labor movement. What you see her doing in this book is knowing how to shift a spotlight, mm. right? How to get people writing letters, how to get people to listen to something. Because even her own family feels like it's futile to speak up. And then Rebecca changes that dynamic for them. Yeah, no. And that's a skill. It is a definite skill. And I think in some ways, like, it's sort of powerful that it is Rebecca because we've been with her on this journey in her family. And we've seen that she feels like she has no voice there. She's trying to navigate that. And in a weird way, like, the protest gives her an occasion to, in a very dramatic way, like, claim her voice in a very, like, dangerous situation. So, you know, I do think it works. I'm just sort of like curious about that. And I think in a broader way, it's because I feel like with labor history, the challenge is like, how do you tell collective histories without like using anecdotal or like, you know, deferring to individual stories or like making heroes of certain people and forgetting like the collective action that made the change happen. And I don't know. I kind of think that that's sort of interesting in this book because because of the nature of American Girl and what this is, like you're going to focus on unique people, which is also true in labor history. But then how do you not, you know, how do you also signal like this was a collective action that actually made this change? 
Okay, folks, at this point, I'm not sure that this meal kit needs any introduction, but just in case it does, today we are here to talk about America's number one HelloFresh. You can gear up for the busy fall season with 55 weekly options and take the stress out of meal planning. From family-friendly and fit and wholesome and even veggie options, HelloFresh has tasty and nutritious meals that are sure to please everyone. HelloFresh has a lot of recipes, a lot of 20-minute meals, and more variety than ever before. The best part is that you get to skip the grocery store and spend more time soaking up the last of the summer sun. I'm sure you have dolls that have barely gotten a tan this year. HelloFresh Market is also a one-stop shop for all your mealtime needs with a curated selection of quick breakfasts, lunches, snacks, desserts, and more. I love HelloFresh because it's an amazing life shortcut and it gives you more time to get back to exactly what you want to be spending time on, like listening to doll podcasts. Be sure to go to HelloFresh.com slash AmericanGirl16 and use our code AmericaGirl16 for 16 free meals across seven boxes and three free gifts. Remember, that code is AmericanGirls16 at HelloFresh.com. Thank you. So our friend, whose name is Amy Loisel, we'll link to her work. She wrote a whole study about the real woman who is behind the Norma Ray character in the film Norma Ray, played by Sally Field, and essentially her struggle to make that moment about the collective as opposed to being one person holding up a union sign. What I like about this book and the fact that we have been on this journey of thinking about like acting versus acting out, when you have this moment of disobedience by Rebecca Rubin. She really is acting out like she's performing on some level, but she's also really going outside of what this family is super comfortable with. And there's photos in the book and there's different things. There's an element and particularly suffragists are going to pick up on this and steal these ideas, particularly from Jewish labor organizers and labor organizers, period. The way that the girls are wearing certain kinds of sashes, the way that they're parading and marching down the street, mm. there's a theatrical element that doesn't make it less real. Right. But I think Max reminds us, like, we all have different gifts, right? Right. So, like, when everyone is singing in chorus, you know, some labor protest song, that's beautiful. But when you need someone to speak, you need a person who literally has a strong voice. This is mm. pre- you know, certain technology, like people have different gifts. And I have been to events like DSA events, other kinds of events, like you do need someone who's compelling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that, that is a very real tension. I think that exists within different communities today where, you know, do you have a story that you're able to tell really well? And Clara Lemlick was an extremely gifted speaker. And it's not just what she says or that she speaks up, but that, there's a certain form of communication that she's she's adept at. Mm. And we've kind of like watched Rebecca learn that, which has been really cool. Um, also, the cop theme comes back when she's like literally hit Ooh. with a rock and learns that the cops are not there to help her. I mean, this is an iconic moment. We should back up. Like, so what ends up happening is like she hears Shinana and the mom hear how bad things are in her uncle and cousin's factory, the coat factory. And they're like, yeah, like we just came from a meeting where people were talking about striking because things are as bad as they can get, but we can't lose our job because we want to be able to make rent. And it comes out that like what somebody, a woman runs down the street and like tells the mom one day, like they just went on strike. And the mom is like, stay here. Do not mm -hmm. go outside the apartment. It's not safe for you to be with me at the protest. But if my husband is protesting, I want to be there to support him. And it's going to be violent. And she kind of signals like the, the factory is going to send um, strike breakers and it's going to be dangerous. And they're like, OK, we hear you. And then she leaves and Rebecca's like, so obviously we need to go to this protest. <laughs> right. Like right. they all kind of debate this point and then they end up going and, you know, they see the strike breakers. And there's actually a really powerful scene of like a strike breaker um, beating a woman in the picket in the strike and like knocking her to the ground from behind. And you get a sense of like, I think it actually really does capture the violence and like the intimacy of these protests in this period and how it kind of upends our own maybe received notions of domesticity. Like 
men will not strike women in a labor protest. And it's like, here it is. And Rebecca's taking this in and is like clearly shocked. And the police then show up and she says my favorite line in the book, which is like meant totally. She says it totally sincerely. Now they'll arrest the goons and protect the workers. And it's like, LOL, Rebecca, like (laughs) that you think that that's what's going to go down here. This book is so wonderful with tiny details, very easy to like, you know, like totally go right past it. But again, it's like the smell of the cabbage, right? The sticky pajamas on their skin. Page 42. Rebecca wondered if that was why Aunt Fanny had used two hat pins and taken her umbrella along. She asks this and kind of thinks this out loud when she sees people using umbrellas as weapons. Again, these kinds of like domestic things. This was the age of the masher, particularly in New York Mm. City. Men who would sexually harass and assault women, particularly those thought to be actresses, which was also sort of code. And there was this kind of notion of like, you, you should fight back, right, against mashers with hairpins. And so women would use their hairpins as weapons. There's some really good articles all about this, but they would talk about like hitting mashers. Uh, In the city I used to work in, we found examples of people bringing out pots and pans and just like literally beating sexual harassers with them along with hairpins. And it's these little things though that she's so acutely aware. She's like, oh, so that's why they have an umbrella when it's not raining. So you remember, we've been waiting for a rain and a thunderstorm this whole time. And it's sort of like, oh, so that's why she has the umbrella, right? They would love a rainstorm right about now. That's why she has it. And then we see um, Clara Adler, who's clearly Clara Lemlick, up on a literal soapbox, which is then used to hurt her. Hmm. Not the most subtle, but also real. Yeah, that was not subtle, but... And then, like, because that happens and the crowd is pushing them for Rebecca, like, is literally pushed over the soapbox and is like, oh, I could stand here and deliver my remarks. Oh, we didn't cover the fact that she began this by she wrote an editorial she wanted to submit to the newspaper. And so when they're having their sleepover on the fire escape, she hands it to Anna and is like, what if I sent this into the newspaper? (laughs) She's like, if people knew, and thinking about this being the era when Upton Sinclair's books are being turned into movies, right? Mm. Upton Sinclair being this very famous muckraker. It's cool to think that she's growing up in an age of media that none of the other girls we've covered have exactly experienced, right? Really being there at the start and the Mm. genesis of all of this being real and being able to genuinely think like, oh, if people knew they would do something, Mm -hmm. right? If only people knew, right? Like that true like progressive era spirit, You mentioned that there's several depictions of police. Um, Again, she's kind of thinking out loud, had they gotten the police to break the strike? Like she's asking questions that for the first time, she's like, I don't think they're on our side. And everyone's (laughs) like, oh, goodness, no. Absolutely not. No. No, they are not. It's just, it's interesting to see. It's really written in a really clever way where you can kind of walk through her thought process of trying to, it's hard to be in the world and to see things that don't line up with your own childlike sense of fairness and to be like, oh, things are happening in the world all the time that are not fair, and but they might be legal or they might be allowed by the people in authority who should be stopping this. They might actually be protecting this bad behavior, which is what she witnesses. And I think that that's sort of like an interesting like maturity or like self-awareness or kind of rude awakening that we walk through with her, which is both like sad but interesting. We did that in book two as well, right? This goes back to her first encounter with like this is not her first encounter with the police state. And when she first figures out what the surveillance state is when she's like nine and a half in book two, she starts asking really basic questions about fairness at Ellis Island and essentially signals like that's not right. And I I wasn't meaning to suggest like early like young laborers in the leader in like the labor movement that they were naive, but mm. there is something about like really truly like feeling that something is so raw and so unfair and that you need to do about do something about it for the first time versus like veteran organizers have a different perspective. Yes, I think that's definitely true. Um, you kind of see that in responses to popular news reporting about Amazon and working conditions there. Like there's been a lot of stories about like what Prime Day actually is like for folks who work at Amazon and 
they obviously just unionized for the first time one of their um one of their complexes this year but i think a lot of people are like wow i have no idea that this place i order from maybe every day or like all the time like this is what the back end of that is looking like but it's hidden on purpose, right? right? I mean, I think something that this book still has a value for and that is revelatory, it's not as if Rebecca lives this like posh life, right? Like she she lives a complicated life in a tenement. Her own family members are part of this. And she has her own kind of mini bootstraps moment where she says like, well, my family made shoes when we first got here. And then her cousin has to say, yeah, and now your dad owns a shoe store. Yeah. So she's what like, we're my dad, about- my mom and dad fell in love <laughs> in a shoe factory. She like paints like a you've got mail moment. And then her cousin's like, er, like, <laughs> let me stop you right there. But also I'm like, I'm sorry, you're, you're jumping to write an editorial as if you don't live in a building with carrier pigeons. Like that's not your first mode of communication. So it's also, again, I think it's like that optimism of, I just have to get word out immediately. Yeah. Right. Or people who have to share like certain thoughts via Twitter and Reddit are like the people need to know. If only, yeah, exactly, yeah. If only people knew. Um, Rebecca is hit in the head with a rock, which is pretty intense. I did not see that coming. Neither did and she. No, she didn't. And we deal with the fallout for that. And then she has a conversation with her mother. I'm glad we were part of the strike. I really am. Just believing that something is wrong isn't enough. I had to do something about it. And this seemed like the right thing. Bubby chimes in, not only going to picket line, but making a speech. And it's like, they still don't know that she's been in a movie. I know. It's like, guys, if you only knew, this chick's like halfway to a sad card. (laughs) We we do learn in the next few pages and Lily kind of backs her up and says, like, you you did the right thing. You did the right thing by being in the film. Um, also a hilarious moment where there's concern that the barbershop quartet is going to do mass haircuts. And they're like, no, don't worry. Pump it's just going to be bad songs, including um, Bicycle Built for Two, which I used to play on the piano. Wow. Zero out of ten. Don't recommend. Wow. You don't recommend like riding a bicycle bill for two or just playing the song. I hear Daisy give me your answer do and like I'm out. <laughs> it's not. Like Daisy, say no. You what if Jack no. Harlow covered it though? Would that do oh it my for God. you? <laughs> listen immediately. I knew it. I knew Immediate it. download. You know, I'm proud of him. And oh God. I'm sure that's not gonna age well. I'm sure we're gonna learn something or there is there are things that I simply don't know about him but you know in the fullness of time if you feel the need to issue a public apology as you should about Reese Witherspoon and Ryan Phillippe like you can use up this platform to do so but you know for now you can just kind of keep riding that train of Jack Harlow being whatever he means to you no judgment judgment free zone but I'm, now I'm just laughing thinking about him doing bicycle bill for two Because it's like, look, he covered Fergie. I'm not saying it's impossible. Could happen. I think he would unfortunately make it sort of like graphic and uncomfortable for everyone. So it's probably for the best that like we don't go there. Yeah. Something I like about him. This is like a very specific aspect of his fandom that I think is probably not for everyone. Something I always found interesting and compelling about Drake was his open fawning of Rihanna. And now on the next layer, like Jack Harlow very openly like worships Drake and then collaborates with Drake on songs such as Churchill Downs. And it's just like very openly fawning over him. Mm -hmm. I mean, is this something that Max would support? Probably. I want to believe that Guard somehow gets caught up in all of this, leaves Cornelia once the girls are adults and they're at Wellesley. And he becomes a stuntman for early cars in Hollywood Love with that. Max. That would be a, that's a beautiful like, future. Lily's like, I see it in an Evelyn Hugo way. Like, I see it. I get it. I'm I'm over here. Yeah. She's like, for legal purposes, we own this production company together. So we're just going to keep that. <laughs> and you do you. I'll do me. It's all good. I mean... Yeah, I think like it is endearing when you see people that you yourself stand being openly fans of other people that they stand because it's sort of like, wow, you're just like us, even if you're not just like us. But, you know, I mean, I support it. It's all good. I mean, people are just celebrities are just living out loud right now in ways that I can't even like I can't process the J-Lo Ben Affleck 
wedding and I'm happy for them. But for two Leos to marry in Vegas during Leo season should be illegal. She is becoming Jennifer Affleck, which is really something knowing that his other wife, Jennifer, lives and that their child looks exactly like Jennifer Garner Affleck. Listen, I'm really happy for them. Several listeners sent us uh, the meme that was basically like, did they crack open an iced coffee from Dunkin' Donuts? Sure did. I think they never stopped loving each other, which was a problem for the other people that they were with. I do think there's some, just like the Rebecca books, wish fulfillment of like, what if it was 2004? And the reality is we can't go back. And if we did, we wouldn't have Rebecca Rubin. Well, I mean, to quote Jack Harlow's boo, Fergie, it's 2000 (laughs) and late. Like, you can't go back in time. (laughs) I do think that the closing scene of this book or like the Labor Day picnic, there is so much that that event has to do in the work of this book that it's that's the part to me where i'm like this book kind of jumps out the window but at this point you're in so deep that you're like yeah okay that's fine but it's sort of like almost a golden age of hollywood movie where it's like we're gonna wrap this all up in five minutes everyone's gonna be happy with how this rolls out and rebecca will of course be responsible for creating happiness or resolving nearly all of these plot lines She has such main character energy. She talks with her father and her father basically says like, well, if you're going to be an actor, I'm sure you'll be a good one. We'll talk about it later. And thinking to herself, she says, what a strange day it had been. Strange, but good, she decided. And then they learn that it's time for the three-legged race. And I thought as a family and as a community, we decided she was going to sit that one down because she probably had a concussion. concussion. Yep. And then the family says, you know, like, you know, how about we go watch? And she says, I don't want to watch the race in a very obvious, like, heavy-handed metaphor. I want to enter it. And I'm like, are you sure? Suddenly, she felt she could do just about anything. I support the acting. Mm -hmm. I support the activism. I support her friendship with Anna. I support the new Brooklyn scheme for the whole family. I support them moving. I don't support this race so quick after a concussion. I think that's the only thing that we as a franchise cannot support because she probably did have a concussion. I don't know what care she was receiving at home because I, I don't believe the family knew about this. Or could process that information. So she was kind of just hanging out in an armchair. And then we're arriving at this race. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but I don't think in 2022 we would sanction that. And I, it's kind of like do less. Like at this point in the picnic, <laughs> right. you have like helped, you know, like roll out my Uncle Max's engagement and his move. You've been called up from the crowd as a surprise because your carpenter friend, all the studio people are at the picnic. And he knew because his sister-in-law works in the factory that you spoke and it were hit with a rock in your head. So you get called up to give your speech and use it to instead kind of like tie a bow around the plot. Introduce your uncle to that carpenter, get him a job building cabinet, solve that problem. <laughs> like right. there's just so much. And then she kind of feels the need to, again, from nowhere, come out as an actor to her dad where she's like, dad, need to sit you down. Here's what it is. I know you want me to be a teacher. And I know I'm about 10 years old at this point, but (laughs) I will be pursuing a career as an actor. We don't get a timeline. We don't know if she's jumping off as a professional child actor. Like, we don't really know. And is she only doing screen work? Is she open to stage work? Like, we, again, that conversation is not happening yet. And she, but she, as a, to get into that conversation, we get her final callback to Miss Maloney, where she's like, Listen, my teacher told us America's a melting pot. She's like, I'll do you one better. America's a band. Hear me out. And then she lists like every <laughs> member of her family. She's like, Bubby so, teaches people to sew. That's her instrument. You sell shoes. That's your instrument. My instrument is my acting. That's me. And then she's like, by the way, I was in a movie. Thank you. And everyone's like, what? Like, <laughs> it's just, it's it's a very dramatic climax to the book. I do respect it. It's it's kind of like she gives reality TV character energy too, where she's like, I will literally create a million plot lines around myself. So I guarantee I'm in every scene. Yeah. And when we started this journey with Rebecca, there was a lot of chit chat about the sisters being 14. Now they're 15. The younger brother was very much in the mix. By this film, it's like if Rebecca or by this book, it's like if Rebecca isn't saving you from near death at Coney Island, she's 
leading a strike. She's doing all of it. Like she's doing everything. It's also this amazing shift and like growth and arc from the early books are all about what she wants to do and feels she can't do. And then the end of the series is sort of like, what might we all do together? Or like, what is our life going to look like together? Which is part of coming into your own as an adolescence. I loved the way that she kinds of like shifts the metaphor. And it's like, Rebecca is doing thinking that many adults on cable television are absolutely unwilling to do, which is like, what if America could be different or better? She's willing to do that at the picnic. So can you. Happy Labor Day. Think about labor. What did you think of the peak into the past? Um... It was interesting. It, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, you can you can say more about the particulars, but I think that's what kind of got me into like, why is this all about like exceptional women and like not about mm. like organizations? Because I think that would be interesting. And there's no child labor in here, like no conversation about that. Like, I don't know. Like, what did you make of it? I think it's one of those that um, had a few different missions. Like part of it is to teach you about like the world of factory work that she was growing up in. Um, there's a line on page 72. Factory workers were treated like machines that could work 12 hours a day, six days a week. Um, I do think that of particular interest, perhaps like to the author or to the groups that made this book was giving us a series of through lines to understand how life for Jewish immigrants was in Mm -hmm. all of these different periods and and what recreation and family and and holidays really looked like. Um, I do think a significant point that this uh, like section makes is like the the important contributions and leadership of Jewish women specifically in these labor movements, right? That it wasn't just like certain groups of people. And even when they couldn't unionize or like were prohibited from unionizing, that people like continued to resist and fight back. Um, I did like that. When you flip to the last page, you kind of like flip from triangle shirtwaist to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I went, whoa, okay. Like, they kind well, also of, Gloria it, it Steinem. Then, They're yeah. like, by the way, Gloria. And you're like, rah! Because what's interesting about that pivot to me is like Clara Lemlich and others, you're more of an expert than I. I believe she and others went on to also kind of organize around women's domestic work to sort of say like, you know, homemakers or what have you, motherhood. And Gloria Steinem obviously is sort of like mixed up in like the politics of the family and like women's like home lives and what have you. And I do think it kind of is an interesting pivot because we don't really have a conversation, nor does the book need to do this, have a conversation about like women's lives and their mm-hmm. labor in the family. But it's kind of like the peak into the past is like we're covering everything. Like, I don't have time to get into that. So I'm just going to throw Gloria Steinem, a photo of Gloria Steinem at you and that's going to stand in for some stuff in RBG. Like to see that was a really hard pivot. And I was like, whoa, RIP. Yeah. I mean, the last paragraph of this whole series, the way that they choose to encapsulate, you know, what you're supposed to take from Rebecca is Jewish people have always deeply valued fairness, equality, and opportunity. In Rebecca's time, when millions of Jewish immigrants settled in America, they brought these values with them into the workplace and American society. This does read very much like an Obama era sort of like valuing a certain group's contributions. And obviously, they're not going to get at complicated contradictions and all of these other things in the very end. You know, it does kind of stand in opposition to what was happening in book five, which was Rebecca asking questions about gender roles more broadly Where I think that this like does actually capture something useful is the factory was so horrible for literally just about everyone. Mm -hmm. Women were represented in high numbers because women were generally paid less and especially immigrant women. And I do think this book sort of makes the point of like Rebecca is not a Samantha who like stumbles into a factory situation. It's kind of organically part of her family's story and she has to figure out what that's going to mean for her. It did feel a little bit sort of like a pop-up video where the last page is like, and did you remember Gloria Steinem? You're like, ah. That really threw but, me. I was like, what? They don't draw the, they no. don't draw much of a, much of a connection that like, honestly, like Rebecca's generation 
and like people a little bit later, like they raised Gloria Steinem. So how does that happen? But that's maybe not for this book. Right. (laughs) You know? Well, and it's also like, it would be interesting again, it's not in this book, but to be like, you know, to have Rebecca grow up in these movements, maybe join the communist party or identify as a socialist and then jump to the fifties where she's raising Gloria Steinem. And it's like, but mom, like they're accusing you of communism. And like, she gets caught up in the red scare. Like, and has to like negotiate that identity would be interesting. Like my mom might be a communist. But honestly, very much like what we learned about Sidney Taylor, right? In reading her biography that, you know, being part of certain radical groups was very much a part of her younger life. And then later it was a bit like, what? Me? Never that happened. Like, that was just some picnics we went to, you know, and and I'm obviously oversimplifying it, but I do wish, as always, that we could meet Rebecca again. I'd love to meet Rebecca during the Depression. Mm -hmm. I think she's doing something along the lines of mutual aid and or she's just like living it up with Max. I think she's living it up with Max. Like, I think she was out in Hollywood. She's making movies. And when the Depression hit, she's like, "Okay, I'm going to donate some of my earnings But I'm also making a lot of money because people are retreating to movies for like signs of hope. And she's like, maybe that's part of my activism. Hard to say, but I do think that's her future. What is our future with Rebecca? Like, we're not done with her, correct? We are definitely not done with Rebecca. We're going to have some episodes with some special guests who can hopefully tell us a little bit more about her world and kind of help put her in context. And we'll be doing a mailbag episode very, very soon. So if you have questions for us about really anything, we will field those. And we will also, I think the person asking us the questions is going to be our intern, Anna Lee. Yes. So we would love your thoughts, questions, inquiries. I will answer right away. Usually our most popular question. Our next person that we're covering is Kit Kitteridge. So it is happening. It's happening. It is coming. We are going to be entering a different kind of depression than the recession we live in currently. So we're going back to the 1930s. So like get you know, your outfits ready, get get your your overalls ready. We are very thrilled to be doing that. But we love when you have questions. Uh, We also, if you're part of our Patreon community, we have a space where you can ask guest speakers questions as follow-ups after they are on the show or before, ideally. So we're really looking forward to hearing from people who will help kind of flesh out Rebecca Rubin's world. And we are we are not done. So there will be more Rebecca. That's right. We can't wait. And if you want to email us, send us messages, leave us a voicemail, Allison, how would people find us? So the best way is to head right on over to our website and you can also reach us at a girl's pod on Twitter, American girls podcast on Instagram. You can also find us personally. I'm at Simon says at Twitter, Instagram and on Flickr. Mary, what about you? I wish I was on Flickr. I'm at Mimi Mahoney on Instagram or at Mary Mahoney one, two, three on Twitter. Very excited. And we will see you on our next episode to chat more about Rebecca. Thank you.